So today, I want to continue our series in the book of Jude called Heed the Warning. Now, you may think, Ben, we've already been through all the verses in Jude. How are you going to continue preaching in the book of Jude? Well, we're going to go back, and we're actually going to look in more detail about three particular historical events that Jude mentioned and also three historical people that Jude mentioned when he was trying to get across the point that all sin brings forth judgment. So the title of the sermon today is Unshakable Faith, and this is going to be part one of this sermon. So this is a two-part sermon. You can never say that I don't think through how long my sermons are going to be. I know a lot of times you guys say, oh, Ben, he's so long-winded. I'm telling you what, you know, we got one person on staff that likes to say they take their naps when I preach, you know, so I can't get any respect around here. Y'all know how it is. But I did think about y'all, so I want to make sure y'all get some lunch before you pass out too, okay? So... Unshakable Faith, part one, and we're going to look in the uh, verse of Jude 5. So if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Jude, and we're going to start in verse 5, and then we're going to move to the Old Testament in Numbers 13. So starting out in Jude, verse 5. All right, give you just a minute to get there, and then once you've found your places, you're welcome to stand to your feet as we honor and respect the Word of God. And at Pole Creek, we believe the Word of God is our foundation. It's our guiding force. It's everything that we base uh, truth upon. It is absolute truth, and it's objective truth. And we don't uh, uh, try to confine the Bible to our lives, but we try to realign our lives to fit the Bible. And we believe that's what God has called us to do. So beginning in the fifth verse of Jude, the Bible says this, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am thankful, Lord, for the historical account of the Bible. How, as we read the Bible, it is not only a spiritual book, Lord, but we know that it is also a factual book. It is a historical book. It is a geographically accurate book. It is an archaeologically accurate book, God. And we know this because your word is ultimate truth. So today, God, as we think about the people of Israel and some of the challenges they encountered in the wilderness, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, that as we go out into a world that is going against your word, a world that is going against Christianity, Lord, that you would help us to have unshakable faith. Lord, help us to know how to have that unshakable faith and help us to move forward without fear because we know, Jesus, that you win in the end. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the question that I want to start out with today is, when did the existence of Jesus begin? When did Jesus start? Did Jesus' life begin in the womb of Mary or the manger in Bethlehem? Well, Jude 5 gives us a little bit of an insight as to Jesus' existence. Now, you may think, Ben, you're talking about unshakable faith. Why are you talking about the existence of Jesus and how long he's been around? Because what we believe about Jesus is going to inform everything else that we believe in our faith. What we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who Jesus claimed to be is going to then be the foundation for us to spring forward into what we believe as our faith in, in Christ. A survey was done by LifeWay that was published December 10th, 2021, and it said that less than half of those people who were polled believe that Jesus pre-existed his birth. 
That is astounding to think that most people in our society believe that Jesus is real, but less than half believe he pre-existed his birth. In the book of John, chapter 1, even in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you move down to verse 14, and the Bible teaches us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible teaches us that Jesus had no beginning, that Jesus was with God in the beginning, that Jesus himself is God. When we talk about the created universe, we look to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ to be that creator. The same one that hung on the cross is the same one that spoke everything into existence. Jesus did not begin at the incarnation. In other words, he did not begin when he took on human flesh. That was not his, the beginning of his existence. As a matter of fact, he had existed eternally before that moment. And he will exist eternally after that moment. This is the Jesus we believe in, the Jesus we trust. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible teaches us of Moses' encounter with a burning bush. And here we find out later in Scripture that the one in that burning bush was Jesus himself. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible says this, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This was the reply that God gave Moses after Moses asked God from the burning bush, whom should I tell the Israelites has sent me? What is your name? Who should I tell them is calling them out of Egyptian slavery? And that's when God uh, answered and said, I am who I am is calling you. I am has sent me to you. Later on, Jesus affirms that he was the one in the burning bush. In John chapter 8, verse 58, the Bible says this, Jesus said unto them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you look in your Bible there, more than likely you have a reference note beside John 8, 58 that's going to point you back to Exodus 3.14. Here Jesus was very clearly telling the Pharisees, I am who I am. In other words, I am the same God that your ancestor Moses encountered in the burning bush. Before Abraham even was, I am. Here Jesus was saying not only was he a past preexistence, but that he is the present existence of God himself. It's kind of interesting in Jude 5, not all translations translate this Jesus, but our CSB does and a few other versions do in verse 5. It says, now I want to remind you in Jude 5, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that who? Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. There's a lot of discussion among theologians about whether that word there in verse 5 should read Jesus or whether it should read Lord. But regardless, we understand that even if your version says Lord there, it's talking about the Lord who is Jesus in verse 4. If you read there in verse 4, it says, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So regardless of what your version of the Bible says in verse 5, we know that the Lord is Jesus he is our one and only master, which means Jesus pre-existed the manger in Bethlehem. It means that Jesus pre-existed 
Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story. Jesus is the one who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It is Jesus. So when we understand who Jesus is and who the Bible teaches him to be, we are then able to have a foundation on whom to base our faith. Everything else in our life must spring forward from whom the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is. So what we believe about God always determines our faith. You may say, Ben, I struggle with my faith. I struggle with believing the Bible. I struggle with giving my life fully to God. You must first come to terms with who this Jesus is. You must understand that he has the authority and he has the power to forgive you for your sins. That he had the authority and he had the power by his own power to raise from the dead three days later. You know, it's one thing for someone else to be raised from the dead, but it's a whole completely different scenario when you raise yourself from the dead. When you yourself get the victory over death, hell, and the grave. This is the God whom we serve. So I want us to look at really three different things here. And remember, this is a two-part sermon. So today I really just want to talk about the, the kind of the, the bad side of this situation. As we read about this historical event in Jude 5, he talks about the children of Israel being saved out of Egypt and later being destroyed because they did not believe. I want us to go deep into this story, and I want us to see truly what happened here with the children of Israel, where they went wrong, and how we can learn from where they went wrong. So just to start out, if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to spend the rest of the service in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to look at this event that Jude mentions in verse 5. We're going to start in verse 7 in Exodus chapter 3. And the first thing that I want us to see is unshakable faith is going to start with a promise. It always starts with a promise. And what you do with that promise determines the outcome. It determines which side of the situation you fall on. So Exodus 3, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says this, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So here we have a promise that God makes to the children of Israel. If you go back even to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 12, you're going to see that this same promise is in connection with the promise that God had previously made to Abraham. God had made Abraham the promise that God would produce a great and mighty nation from Abraham's seed. The Bible teaches us that God told Abraham that his seed would bless the entire world. The entire world would be blessed by his offspring and by a nation that would be created through Abraham. Fast forward, now we have the days of Moses in the land of Egypt. Moses being a descendant of Abraham. God's promise is not forgotten, by the way. God reiterates the promise. God puts another detail into the promise and says, Now, that great land and that great country that I promised Abraham, Moses I'm going to have you lead my people into that very land. That promise was held to, and that promise was kept by God. I want to ask you a question. How do you know if someone is a person of their word? I mean, how can you really know? You really, honestly, have to know their history. 
You have to know them for a while before you can really determine if someone is a person of their word or not. You can't be meeting a new person and based just upon a feeling you get, know if they're going to be a person of their word or not. You've got to have a track record. You've got to know where have they stood in the past. What is the pattern of how they live their lives? We can see in the word of God, time and time again, God makes promises. And guess what? God keeps his promises. God has an undefeated record of keeping promises. God, the Bible says, even cannot lie. He can't even tell a lie. So you know what that means for us today? If all this starts with a promise from God, how do we know how valuable that promise is? Well, we have to base the promise on the person who's making the promise. Remember who that person was that we just talked about? God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus is eternally preexistent. Jesus has the authority over all things. Listen, Jesus spoke everything into existence from nothing. Now, it's one thing to create something from something, but it's a whole different animal to create everything from nothing. Hey, any of us can take a ball of clay and we can create something, but we didn't make the clay. Any of us can take a, an old vehicle and restore it to look like brand new, but we didn't create the metal that was used to make the vehicle. We didn't operate on the assembly line that was used to build the vehicle. Only God, from his very thoughts to his words, can speak something into existence that previously did not exist. So when we think about a promise, and starting with a promise, and we even look back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where after sin had entered the human race after Adam and Eve's disobedience, there was a promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said that he will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. What that meant was that was the prophecy of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would be sent, that he would die on the cross, and the death on the cross would be as though Jesus had bruised his heel. He would have taken great pain. He would have been greatly hurt through that process, but come out victorious. But you know what Jesus did in the process of dying on the cross and rising from the dead? He crushed the head of Satan. He basically took the keys to Satan's very own house away from him. Did you know that Satan doesn't even control hell anymore? That Satan has no authority over hell? That Sa that's not even Satan's house? Did you know that Satan actually roams about on the earth? But one day he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire where he will burn forever and ever and day and night. So now as we think about the victory that he has won, we see that God heard the cries of the children of Israel and said, now I'm going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt and I'm going to give them the land that was promised to them. If you go forward there, and you're welcome to turn there, Numbers 13, verses 1 through 2, the children of Israel have now come out of the land of Egypt. Moses has led them. Uh, they're free of their bonds of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. In reality, it should have only taken a couple of weeks for the children of Israel to travel from Egypt into the promised land. And they've come up to this place where they're about to enter the promised land. They've only been out of Egypt for around a year. God has already given them the Ten Commandments. God has already taught them how to build the tabernacle. God has given them everything they need to know to now go into the promised land and to take the land flowing with milk and honey that he had promised them. And they come to this place where in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses... Send men to scout out the land of Canaan I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Here we have the men going into Canaan land. 
They're going to go in and spy out the land to see what all it's going to take to conquer the land. Since what God says is true, then obviously we can stand on his promises. In reality, the children of Israel already knew that God had promised them the land. This was really just a formality, just kind of a test where God was testing their faith to see are they really, even in view of the great and mighty powers that are living in Canaan, are my people still going to take me at my word, and are they still going to march forward and possess the land that I've given them? Here God is giving them that opportunity after seeing the inhabitants of the land. The children of Israel had been given that promise, and really, that should have been good enough. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, the Bible says, So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have, to fled, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. In other words, we understand that God can't change and God can't lie. Therefore, we can confidently seize the hope that is before us. What is that hope? It is the hope of eternal life. It is the hope of us who know Jesus Christ, knowing that one day we're going to spend forever in heaven. And we get to have that hope, and we get to rest in that hope because God is unchangeable and because God can't lie. Did you know that if God makes you a promise, he's not going to change his mind about that promise? Did you know that God is infinitely sovereign? Nothing takes him by surprise. He never makes mistakes, and he's always right. So today, you can stand on that hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ because God can't lie and because he loves us. He's unchangeable. John 17, verse 17 says this. Jesus was praying for his disciples, and this is what he said as he was praying to God the Father. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You know, we have so many people who try to discount the Bible. So many people who say it's fables, it's fairy tales, it's old, it's ancient, it doesn't apply to our lives today. But here we have Jesus. Now remember the person who's saying this, Jesus who is infinitely God, Jesus who took on human flesh, died on the cross and rose from the dead. This same Jesus, this same God is saying God's word is truth. Not God's word is a version of the truth. Not God's word is contained in here. The truth is not just contained in the Bible. But the Bible in its entirety is truth. And that's why, as a local Bible-believing church, we do not change God's Word. Regardless of the passing times, uh, regardless of the social environment that we're in, regardless of gender theory or political ideas, we don't bend on God's Word because we believe Jesus. We believe what Jesus said. Jesus said, God, your Word is truth. So I don't care if the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or some uh, off-the-wall Supreme Court justice or whomever it may be that decides they're going to be the judge and the arbiter of truth says this is wrong, guess who I'm going to stick with? I'm going to stick with Jesus because Jesus spoke everything into existence from nothing. Show me a politician that was able to do that one. Show me a politician that was able to raise themselves from the dead. Show me a politician who conquered death, hell, and the grave. They don't exist. Hey, you know what? Regardless of what CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of these media outlets or Twitter or Facebook, you know, I don't care about none of that. All right, regardless of what they say, the creator of the heavens and the earth gets to determine what truth is. And he has stated truth, and he has made it very clear in his word, and that's what we must stand on. 
So here we understand that it all starts with a promise. We have promise after promise in the word of God that God will save us from our sins. Today you may say, Ben, I don't have enough faith. Ben, I am a person of little faith. Did you know that the amount of faith you have doesn't matter? Did you know that you can be a person of very little faith and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because the effectiveness of your belief is not based upon you. It's based upon the one you're believing in. It's based upon the Jesus who is the God of the universe. So when the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible never says, well, you've got to believe this much. Oh, you've got to be a person of, of a huge amount of faith in order for you to be saved. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says even the faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. The Bible says have faith, trust. And as Daniel was saying before, faith involves action. I've used this example many times, but if I were to grab one of these chairs up here and I were to stand here and talk about this chair, about how sturdy that chair is and about how strong it is and how I'm just sure that if I sit in it, it's going to hold me up. I can talk about that all day long, but I've yet to trust in that chair. I've yet to put my faith in that chair. The moment I sit down and I rest my some 225 pounds in that chair, that's when I'm trusting it. That's when my faith is made, made whole and made true, is when I sit in the chair. Hey, you know what? You know when, when faith happens about Jesus? It's when you rest your eternity in him. It's when you lean into Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. I know that if I don't confess my sins, that I'm going to have to pay the price for my sins one day. And Jesus, I know that you paid the price upon the cross. So today, Jesus, I'm just going to rest in you for my salvation and my forgiveness based upon your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. You know what the Bible says? When you do that, you're saved. Later on, you may doubt and say, Ben, you know, I just don't know how... I just don't know if I really understood or I really meant it. I don't know if I prayed the prayer right. I don't know if I was in the right place when I believed. Listen, if you trust in Jesus for your eternity based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, the Bible says you are saved. I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care where you prayed it. I don't care where you've been and where you come from. If you trust in Jesus, the Bible says you shall be saved. And that is important to remember. When we get to this next point here in this story where the children of Israel fail to believe the promise of God. And what a traumatic event. Because you've got to think about this. The children of Israel have just been freed from Egyptian slavery. The God of the universe just parted the waters of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel walked across on dry land. And God crushed the armies of Pharaoh by bringing the waters back upon them. But yet the children of Israel had trouble believing. So this second point I want you to write down, disbelief, then disobedience. Disbelief, then disobedience. <clears throat> We're going to find that in Numbers chapter 13. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to work our way through this story that Jude talks about in verse 5 of Jude. So Numbers 13, beginning in verse 25. The Bible says this, at the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. So when Moses, when God had commanded the children of Israel, send out spies to scout the land to see what's there. Well, there was one representative from every tribe of Israel, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. So there were 12 men who had gone into Canaan land to scout out the land before they were to go in to possess it. And it says at the end of 40 days of scouting and researching and traveling through the land, they came back. 
It says in verse 26, the men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of the fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. So they had scouted out geographically where each one of these people groups were living. Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they're stronger than us. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land was passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. Israel did not believe God's promise. You remember what God said? God said, the land is yours. I'm giving you this land. All you've got to do is go in and possess it. And the spies went and they saw these strong military fortresses and these mighty warriors and these great armies. And they said, you know what? I know what God said, but I know what I saw and I just can't do that. I'm not going to believe God. And as a matter of fact, you know what we need to do? We just need to hang out in the wilderness for a little while. You know, I'm, I'm too afraid. And listen, when you let fear rule your life, you know what that is? That's sin. Because it is a lack of trust in God. When you fear anything, you are basically saying, God, you can't handle this. I've got to figure it out myself. And here we see the children of Israel doing that very same thing. You know, when we refuse to believe God, we are essentially saying that he isn't who he claims to be. We're questioning his sovereignty and his power when we don't believe him, and we are essentially calling him a liar. When you decide to say, God, your promises are not good enough, I just can't believe that, you're calling him a liar. And don't even children regularly do that to their parents? They refuse to believe what their parents say about a certain thing in life. And when they refuse to believe that certain thing, they choose to disobey what their parents said about that thing. They basically say, I don't believe the validity or the legitimacy of what you're saying, mom and dad. Therefore, if I don't believe it to be true, I don't really need to listen to it because it's not going to benefit me and it's not going to help me. It's very offensive to the person who is giving the promise, the person who is giving the information. Don't you think that God is offended when we choose not to believe him? When we choose to kind of go our own way? Hey, you know what the children of Israel did? They decided not to believe God and guess what it led into? Disobedience. Now, they're not only not believing God, but they're saying, because we don't believe your promise, God, we're not going to go in and possess the land. We're not going to do what you asked us to do. How many of us do that every single day? We fail to believe God. We fail to trust in him based on who he is. Remember how we can trust someone? Remember how we can know someone as someone of their word? Because we know their reputation, we know their track record, and we know who they are. And if Jesus really is the God of the universe, and Jesus really did create everything out of nothing, then I think we can trust in his promises. 
And when you fail to trust in his promises, you're saying maybe God isn't really who he claims to be. You say, Ben, I would never say that. But that's exactly what you're saying. When you fail to believe the promises of God. The last thing that I want us to see is this. Not only does disbelief end in disobedience, but it doesn't even stop there because disobedience then becomes judgment. So if you're taking notes, disobedience then judgment. We see in verses 14, 11 through 12 some of this story as it continues. Numbers 14, verse 11, the Bible says this. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. You go forward to verse 20. The Lord responded as Moses pled with God that he would not destroy Israel. The Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested, yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. And then verse 29, it says this, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, all of you who were registered in the census, the entire number of you 20 years old and more, because you have complained about me. You remember what it said in Jude, verse 5? He said, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt, and later they were destroyed because they chose not to believe God. Later they were destroyed because they chose not to believe the promise of God. Here we see the fulfillment of that promise. As God says, all of you in this current generation, because you have refused to believe in me, you will now wander through the wilderness. Even though you are only two weeks away from the promised land, you will now wander in the wilderness, which was the desert, for 40 years. And the moment that your last corpse hits the ground, then your children can come into the land that I swore their fathers. Have you ever been driving down the road, and I'd say most of you have if you've lived here at any length of time, here in the mountains and noticed an entire forest consumed by kudzu? We all know about kudzu, that's right. Kudzu was introduced into the United States in the late 1800s. You know, it's not native to our country and to our land. And the thing about kudzu is it disrupts native ecosystems, threatens natural resources, and inhibits the use of forest land. Particularly in Mississippi, where kudzu is pervasive, land infested with kudzu has little or no value. It was thought that kudzu would be the answer to erosion control. Kudzu can grow up to 12 inches in length in just one day. Can you imagine that? It doesn't need even ideal conditions, and nothing can stop it or get in its way. If you've been driving down the road, you'll see old barns just consumed with kudzu, and old houses you'll see in big oak trees that have probably been there for several hundred years about to die because kudzu is choking the life out of them. Did you know that sin is very similar to kudzu? And your unbelief will lead to disobedience, which will always lead to judgment. In the same way, sin in your life, even though you think, well, this is just unbelief in my heart, this is where it stops, it's not going to affect how I live, it's not going to affect who I am as a person, I promise you, your unbelief in the God of the universe will mess you up. 
it will cause problem after problem that continues to grow and grow simply because if you don't believe in the one who made everything, you cannot believe anything right about anything else. It will distort your view of society. It will distort your view of human life. It will distort your view about what is truth. It will distort your view about who you are and, and what you're worthy of. It will distort everything when you get Jesus wrong. Jesus is infinitely important in your belief system. In verse 11 there in chapter 14, it, we see how offended God was that the children of Israel did not believe in him. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, how long? Will these people despise me? You know what God took their disbelief as? He took it as them saying, we hate you, God. We despise you, God. See how, see how powerful that is when you have disbelief in your heart? Because you're essentially saying, God, I hate you, and I don't believe you to be who you really are. That is what disbelief ends up becoming. Because of the great offense they had com uh, committed, God was ready to annihilate them. You hear the conversation that he had with Moses. A lot of people say, well, Ben, did God change his mind? No, God didn't change his mind. But the Word of God has what's called anthropomorphisms. And what that is is God gives human attributes to himself in order to explain himself. Because there's so many things about God we can never understand with our finite human minds that God explains himself in human terms so that we can kind of understand how the story unfolds. Listen, God did not change his mind that day. God was not going to destroy Israel to begin with, but God was certainly expressing to Moses his disgust and his anger for the disbelief of the children of Israel. Now, when we come back full circle to Jude and what we read in Jude, remember that the book of Jude begins about talking about those who distort the truth of God. If you look back in verses 3 and 4 of the book of Jude, he talks about people who turned the grace of God into a license to sin. He turned the grace of God, these people had turned the grace of God in, into a thing that says, you know what, live however you want, it's okay, God's grace is sufficient. And what they were producing was people who claimed to be Christians but were living like the world. And the Bible teaches us that faith without works is dead. So we know that that was unbiblical and God's judgment was about to fall on those people. And God was using this story of the children of Israel in the wilderness to communicate to those people that if you keep distorting the word of God, if you keep disbelieving God to be who he is, then great judgment is going to fall on you. In the same way that every corpse of that generation who had disbelieved God fell in the wilderness and was buried in the wilderness and they were judged, in the same way those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will also, their corpses fall and they will spend an eternity in a place called hell. So today we understand the magnitude of what's being said here. We understand the magnitude of what the Bible is teaching. And then we say, Ben, what should we do? Well, number one, you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is who he said he was. You must believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And you may be out there and say, Ben, I trust that. I fully believe that. Well, praise God. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life and you are saved. But what part of your life now are you not trusting with the Lord? Are you holding on to a few things in your life because maybe God can't quite handle it? Is your faith shaking because you feel like there's too much for God to handle? Or maybe you've got so many things going on in your life that you're someone who thinks nobody can fix it better than me. If that's you this morning, listen, this altar is going to be open here in a minute. You can easily just sit right there in your chair and you can pray to the Lord. But to this morning, we need to confess our sins to the Lord. We need to confess our disbelief to him. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus this morning, you can come to know Jesus as your Savior. The Bible teaches that today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The Bible doesn't teach that you should wait. 
The Bible doesn't teach that you should do a little bit more research. Remember what I said? To be saved means you trust in Jesus, you have faith in him, and you rest in him. God cannot lie this morning, my friends. And therefore, because God cannot lie, you should all have unshakable faith. Bow your heads with me as we pray.